0: Well, hello everyone, like I said, my name is Lane, and today we are so excited to be continuing in our Acts series, When the World Turned Upside Down. And today we're going to be proclaiming a truth about our faith, and that is this, the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. I know, groundbreaking, write it down, tattoo it on your forehead, put it in a time capsule, bury it, dig it up 10 years later to remind yourself, the gospel is for everyone. Simple, right? But is it though? Because see, recently I felt really challenged by Jesus, which he's really good at challenging us. And if we're reading Jesus and we're not feeling uncomfortable or challenged, we're probably not reading him correctly. But I've been feeling challenged and I've had to ask myself, do my thoughts and my actions actually line up with what I say I believe? Do my thoughts and my actions actually line up with what I say I believe? For, For example... In recent weeks especially, I've been challenged by the fact that I say that I believe that all people, no matter what their race or culture, that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore equally worthy of love and equally worthy of mercy. But in light of recent events, I've had to ask myself, do my words and my practices, do they provide evidence to that reality? What have I really been doing to combat racism in my life and in the world? What have I said, what have I done to prove that every single human life is worthy of love and mercy? Because see, maybe I'd like to think that I'm not a racist, but is it true? Maybe I don't use racial slurs and maybe I don't profess hate towards people of color, but what have I actually done to combat systemic racism and inequity in the lives of people of color? Do my thoughts and actions truly align with equitable justice and dignity for all human beings? Is it true? So today, we're going to challenge a reality and we're going to challenge, do we really believe that the gospel of Jesus is for everyone? Last week, Brad opened by talking about the gospel, the good news. This is the coming together of God and human beings. And I think that what this means is often so much bigger than what we understand. My first year in university I was in a class called Theology of Church Mission. And the first day of class, my professor, a man named Bill, who would later become a great friend and a great mentor to me and ended up marrying me and my wife, um, he asked this question, what is the gospel? And I had grown up in church my whole life, so I felt good and confident. I raised my hand and I proudly proclaimed, Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I could go to heaven when I die. And he said, no no? Are you serious? Are you really a professor here? Because I think I'm smarter than you. I didn't say that, but I I thought it in my head. And he said, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a crucial and vital aspect of the good news, but it is not your fire insurance. The truest form of the gospel is this. The kingdom of heaven has come and is coming to earth, and God has invited us to take part in it. See, the more I read about this incredible man named Jesus and how he asks us to live, the more I think that heaven is not simply somewhere we will be one day, but rather something that we should be bringing with us wherever we go, from our homes to our cities and to the ends of the earth. So today we're going to be looking at a section of biblical history surrounding an early Christian that we were introduced to last week. His name is Philip. And I think we're going to see that there are some things about this subject that God's going to teach us in this text. So there are three points that we're going to be making together, okay? First one is this. Our ability to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. Two, Jesus is far more concerned with mercy and with freedom than he is with religion and with rules. And three, in our current cultural moment, the people at the ends of the earth are right next door. So go ahead and open your Bibles or your phones to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, I promise to do my best not to misquote the Apostle Luke. Chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Okay, so let's unpack this step by step. One, an angel of the Lord comes to Philip, and I don't know about you, but I haven't had many occasions in my life where angels have come and appeared to me to communicate the will of God, maybe only like 10 or 15 times that I can remember. That's a joke. I wish I could tell if you were laughing. I can't. Did you guys laugh at that? It was funny. You should have laughed at that. (laughs) But the point of this section really is that Philip is ready. So he's seen the Holy Spirit move. He's awake to the heart of God and the leading of the Spirit, and the angel comes to him while he's praying. Philip is ready to go, to do whatever God asks of him. So without hesitation, he jumps at the opportunity, and he's not going to a very specific destination. He's told to go on a road, a desert road. It'd be like an angel going to Brad and saying, hey, go hang out on 217 between Tigard and Beaverton. I'll have something for you to do there. But Philip doesn't even question it. He goes without hesitation. And at this point in the story, I have to ask myself, am I awake to and ready for what God wants to do in and through me today? Like in a moment-to-moment basis, am I listening to how Holy Spirit might be guiding me? If anyone asks me, I would like to say, yes, I'm open and willing to whatever God wants to do in and through me today. But is it true? Do my thoughts and my actions truly line up with what I say I believe? The ancient Hebrews and Orthodox Jews today even meditate on something called the Shema. It's a prayer out of Deuteronomy. And it goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And later in the New Testament, Jesus adds to the saying that if you're going to love God, it means that you also love people. See, I might say that I love everyone, but am I willing to love anyone? This word here is best translated, listen and obey. In that one word, listen and obey. There's so much noise in this world. Externally, there's a bunch of noise. Internally, there's a bunch of, a bunch of anxious anxious noise. Sometimes I think it's easier just to let it turn to static, to let myself go numb. But the first directive in this Shema is "hear, listen and obey. There's a Christian psychologist named Dr. Amy Oden, and she wrote this. In a world where so many people feel that they are sleepwalking through their lives, Jesus' call to be awake resonates with the vague awareness of missing out on our own lives. The Spirit can be speaking into our lives, God can be moving in us, and we will miss it entirely because we are lost in mental machinations. Are we listening? We say we're open to moving how God would direct us, but are we listening? Are we making room for his voice and his word? In my personal experience, our dominant culture can be pretty defensive and polarized, so I think it's really crucial right now that we learn how to listen, not so that we can react or defend, but so that God and people can be heard and be understood. Notice that in this story, it's truly a dialogue between Philip and the Ethiopian, who has already been pursuing God and without even realizing he has been pursuing Jesus in this Old Testament prophecy. I think people in this world are often in pursuit of Jesus without even realizing it. Are we listening? Are we awake? Now, once Philip moves in obedience to this road between Jerusalem and Gaza, he encounters the Ethiopian riding in his chariot. And now what he does here is really meaningful. We get this picture of Philip running to catch this chariot. And something we need to understand that is in this Hebrew culture, even today to the Orthodox Jew, it's considered undignified to run in public. The only reason a man would ever run in public is if there was a dire emergency. This is why in the parable of the prodigal son, we have this powerful image of the father running to embrace his son. Seeing his repentance on the horizon, he runs to meet him. The heart of the father is to run towards those he loves. The heart of the father is to run after those in the margins. He's desperate to offer his love and his mercy. This to me is a clear parallel. This is the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the one. This is the father running to meet his prodigal son. This is God sending Philip to run to reach the Ethiopian. If we want to love everyone, we have to be willing to love anyone. Now, when he catches up to the chariot, the Ethiopian invites him in to join. It's kind of a funny picture, right? He's kind of running out of breath. What you reading, right? He invites him into his chariot. And now right here in this situation, we see the heart of Jesus reflected yet again. Do you ever notice that whenever Jesus is ministering to people, he's always inviting himself over to their house? (laughs) Jesus is always putting himself on the receiving end of a person's hospitality. And this this is actually pretty profound. See, in our culture, We really love to host people. Jaina and I love to have people over when our our home is clean enough, and we like to make them feel well taken care of and, 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 and welcome. And I think this is great, but being the host, it's a far more comfortable feeling than being the guest. See, as a host, this is my domain, my territory where I feel comfortable, but as a guest, I'm doing things like asking permission to go to the bathroom, right? Jesus is always meeting people where they are, leaving the 99 to go after the one. Jesus is always asking to come over, always asking for food. He's like a poor college student. (laughs) But I think about the dignity. Think about this. Think about the dignity that is bestowed upon a person when they are in a position where they have something to offer. Jesus, the son of God, through whom everything was made that has been made, was constantly saying with his actions, you have something to offer me, the king of the universe. Think of the woman at the well, a woman who was covered with the religious shame of multiple marriages and the ethnic shame of being a Samaritan. And Jesus says, give me something to drink. And now we see Philip, who is in his own situation, bearing some shame of being a Grecian Jew and the socioeconomic shame of having to run in his sandals to catch up to the fancy chariot. And he's having a conversation about Jesus with this man of color who was castrated. This is a picture of the new humanity that Luke is writing about. All human beings being brought together despite any boundaries or borders that we might want to put up. And sometimes I think we need to recognize that just because someone hasn't yet decided to follow Jesus does not mean they don't have something to offer you or to teach you. They are still a creation of God bearing his image. Every human being is is a miraculous spark of God's divine glory. As the great theologian Master Yoda once said, luminous beings are we. No, but seriously, perhaps our willingness to receive hospitality is the ability to give someone human dignity. And at this, this is the entry point to relationship on equal footing. Okay, so let's talk about the man that Philip has been sent to meet. So there's a lot we can observe about him by the details in the story. He's obviously an Ethiopian, a nation in Africa, uh, so he's a man of color. He's likely a person of great status in direct service of the queen. He is physically a eunuch, which means he has been castrated. If you need to do some research on what that means, just hit pause and do a Wikipedia search. When someone in his culture would have been castrated, it, it could have been forced upon him or it likely would have been something that he had chosen to do at a very young age. It would have been communicated that his existence would be relegated to the service of the queen, responsible and tending to the most important tasks of his nation. And although he would have access to wealth and to power, his being, his identity would be completely utilitarian to his people. In his society, he existed solely to carry out tasks. He's both honored but dehumanized all in one fell swoop. But what's fascinating about this man is that he is on his way back from worshiping in Jerusalem. Now this could mean a few things. It could mean that he's one a part of the Hebrew diaspora that was scattered about, or he could have been a Jewish convert, or he could have just been someone who was on a personal journey of faith. Either way, as somebody who is a eunuch, he would have been denied the right to worship through animal sacrifice at the temple because he would have been regarded as someone who had been mutilated and therefore not within the ritual guidelines for the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to worship fully. And I think God sent Philip to this man because this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus was doing when he walked the earth. He wasn't looking for reasons to keep people out. He was going out to be with who society deemed to be the lonely, the sick, the sinful, the pariahs, the outcasts. People that felt who they were somehow disqualified them from being in the presence of God. So he was bringing the presence of God to them, gifting them with human dignity. Jesus is far more concerned with mercy and with freedom than he is with religion and with rules. Jesus didn't give the Great Commission and say, okay, stay put and hope people will come from all over to hear what you have to say and hopefully they'll say the right prayer. No, he said, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. Ethiopia would have been the absolute outskirts of their known world at the time, the farthest stretches of human society. And as a man, as a eunuch, he would have been on the outskirts of religious and gendered sensibilities. He represented the most profound shame that a Hebrew man can carry, which is that he was unable to produce children. It might seem weird to us today, but back then this was a shameful, shameful burden to carry in a first century Jewish context. What it meant to be a man in this society was to be able to pass on your lineage, to be able to have children. And what, meant, what it meant for him to be a man in this society was taken from him while he was still a boy. Imagine, imagine having something that makes you different from everyone else and that be the thing that keeps you from the presence of God and from his people. I honestly think a lot of people probably feel this way about God and about church. And and he's reading about this Savior, this Messiah, who, like him, had no physical descendants to his name. Jesus, who chose a life and a path that would be like a lamb, led to slaughter, acquainted and familiar with suffering and with pain and with ridicule. What it means to be truly a man is not something that the culture can define. It's only something that God can give to us. You know, perhaps one of the most loving and meaningful things about Jesus is not that he rescues us from every difficult situation every time, but that he is truly the only one who understands your pain and your shame. The eunuch saw himself in the suffering man. He's combing the scriptures, searching for himself in there somewhere. It's heartbreaking that amidst all of his wealth and all of his status, there was still something at his core that was suffering. There was still a part of him that felt other, that felt unworthy. This man would have been offensive to Jewish sensibilities, but God sent Philip to run after this man. And I have to ask, do we find ourselves in a place where we are more concerned with our religious sensibilities and our comfort than we are with giving love and mercy to people. I think we can sometimes find ourselves getting into a backwards way of thinking about our faith, thinking about it as who's in and who's out. I think there's a danger of us seeing it like this. If you choose to believe the right things and practice the right behavior, then you can belong. Then you can be accepted. If you clean up your life to look like mine, if you can make your life look like a good Christian, then you've proven that you belong here with us, you're in but until you check the right boxes and say the right prayer, you're out. Tell me, where in this do we see the desire to leave the 99 and find the one? Where in this do we see a suffering Messiah who enters into our pain and our shame to resurrect us into new life? This is not how Jesus works. Jesus enters into the lives of the forgotten and the unseen, and he invites us to follow him. And as we spend time learning from this beautiful, loving Savior, we begin to change, we begin to transform. The truest transformation and redemption of our souls can only occur in relationship with the Redeemer. If we try to make change happen on the outside, correcting our practices and beliefs apart from relationship, that's when we get religion. That's when we fall into the same thinking as the Pharisees. If I can just get my stuff in order, if I can just clean up my life, then I can belong. No, Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and brokenhearted, and I will give you rest. I think that this is actually a much closer picture of what following Jesus looks like. So many people believing and doing so many things. Some people may be really close to what is true or healthy and some really far, but our proximity to religion is far less important than the orientation of our lives towards Jesus. I can subscribe to some of the most correct beliefs and practices and fail to notice when Jesus walks in the room. Like the Pharisees, I I can become so obsessed with pleasing God and doing the right thing that I forget how to be with him. And obviously, yes, it's interesting, right? There's this invitation from Jesus to make us the Lord of our lives and therefore to radically change us and transform us. But he's in the business of transforming us into his likeness. But sometimes I think we'd like it better if he transformed people into our likeness. But that's not how it works. Maybe we shouldn't be so concerned with changing people and correcting them. Maybe we should let Jesus and Holy Spirit do that. Maybe instead we should not be guarding our tradition and our comforts out of insecurity. Maybe we should be running towards the least likely and the least sensible people, extending the love and mercy of God and eager to do so. We shouldn't be looking for excuses not to show mercy. <laughs> like Philip, we should be hungry and ready and awake to every opportunity to do it. But but they use offensive language or they watch terrible things. They voted for a terrible leader. They they have an addiction. They're sexually immoral. They have the wrong ethical beliefs. They don't look and act the way I think they, look, they should act. They, they don't look and act like me. Here's the thing. The disciples got a lot of stuff wrong before they started following Jesus. They continued to get stuff wrong while they were with Jesus. And yes, they continued to still get stuff wrong after Jesus ascended. Transformation is not a prerequisite to being a follower of Jesus. Transformation is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is for everyone. Do our thoughts and our actions speak to that reality? This Ethiopian, this man, he was used to being denied access to the presence of God and he sees himself in the suffering Messiah. And I'm sure that Philip explained to him That although he would be unable to have a family of his own, he was being given through the love, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a legacy of a larger family. Closer than anything bonded by blood or by genetics, he was becoming a part of God's family that transcends time and space. And so they come upon some water in the desert, and you can almost hear the hopeful anticipation in his voice. What can keep me from being baptized? I've been denied my whole life. I've been told why I don't fit, why I'm different. Lay it on me. What's going to keep me from this good news this time? And without saying a word, Philip responds, absolutely nothing. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. I will baptize you right here, right now. This was a man on the outskirts of the known world, on the outskirts of Jewish sensibilities, on the outskirts of acceptable sexuality. He didn't check maybe all of the right boxes of belief and behavior. He perhaps thought that he was out of reach of belonging, but God sent Philip to run after the one. Are we listening? Are we awake? Are we truly willing and ready to extend the gospel to everyone? What's also important in this, is, is in this story is that the Ethiopian was searching, right? He was hungry for truth. Guess what? Our society is searching right now. Our society is hungry for justice and for hope. There, there's a rapper I listen to. His name's KB. I listen to his stuff when I'm working out because I'm, I'm tough like that. But he said this, I truly believe that Christians are in the best position for the fight against social injustice, because we have what the world needs. The gospel is not an allegiance that is first right or left, but above. What if our only bias was righteousness? Would revival not come? The world is searching right now for justice, for hope. There is a lot of unrest. There is this deep sense in the soul of our nation that something is wrong. People are, are looking for themselves to be in the eyes of others. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you know what I'm going through? Do you care? And as people of faith, we need to be those who are quick to listen, to see these people, slow to speak and slow to become angry. People who are extending the affection and compassion of Jesus. Are we listening to and seeing those who are searching for a story of justice and hope? They're searching. Do they see that in us? Do they see a community where they can belong before they check the right boxes? Do they see room for themselves in the story that we're telling? Because if they don't, they won't come. Do they see the suffering Jesus acquainted with their pain? Do they see a Savior who is also denied justice? At this point in our history, the church has sent people all over the globe to bring the love of Jesus to the outskirts of the earth. But the outskirts of our religious sensibilities, the outskirts of our comfort zones, these opportunities are all around us right now. Because of our culture and our preferences, someone 500 feet away might feel like they're 500 miles away. Are we listening? And then the weirdest part of the story is that Philip gets instantly teleported To another place. If that were me seeing that, I would have flipped out and lost my mind. People don't just teleport out of thin air and and disappear. But this man was far less shocked by a man teleporting in front of his very eyes than he was that God would send someone to the desert to let him know that the gospel of Jesus was for him. We're going to take some time right now to respond in reflection and in worship. And during this time, Let's think about these things and ask Holy Spirit to speak.
1: say see you So good to me. When I felt no word, You paid it all for me, oh Lord. You have been so, so kind to me. Come on, church. No